Paulie Malanaji for Paulie TV here. We're going to go into some stuff. Actually, I still got, look at this. I still got my mask that they made me wear on the airplane. Let me take this thing off right now. Hold on. It's, in my, it's on my neck. Let me take it off. Let me take it off. See this? See, on the, on the airplanes, we still got these rules. So I had, to, I had it around my neck because I, I just flew into here. And now we can put it away. All right, guys. So today's episode on Paulie TV. We're going to get into the hardest punches I took. Um, you know, everybody has a lot of misconceptions about what a punch feels like. Uh, you know, it's funny. It, it, when you first meet, and I think a lot of boxers probably go through this. I don't know. I know I, I've answered a bunch of these questions or, or at least gotten a bunch of these questions, ridiculous questions. And I know people don't mean harm by them, so I don't really get offended. I think some people get more mad about them. Like when they say, like, doesn't it hurt? Of course, you know, getting punched doesn't tickle. It, it does hurt, you know. Uh, but what it, what I mean by hurt would be probably, uh, you know, when you lose consciousness or when you feel like you're stepping in potholes, when you, you know, that kind of hurt. You know, every punch doesn't tickle in terms of every single punch. If you hit you, like, ah, that, you know, that stung, that hurt, you know. But when we talk about hurt in, in fighting terms, we talk about hurt like, you know, when it's, you know, you're basically losing consciousness. You're, you feel like you're, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're going, you know, something's wrong, you know, something goes wrong, you know, you're wobbled, you're hurt. So you get those moments. If you box for long enough, you're going to feel that at certain points. You know, there's guys who have never been knocked out badly, but um, even if you haven't been knocked out badly, you've had moments where you've been hurt, you know, and then, like I said, the hurt, the term hurt by fighting terms means rocked, wobbled, and all that other stuff where you're trying to get your, your, your senses back together. Sometimes you're still trying to be in the fight and, and, and you're trying to get your senses back together. So for me, you know, obviously I had the, this curiosity as well, uh, you know, and, and people always used to ask me when I first started boxing, when I first started sparring, oh, you know, does it feel like, does it? And I'm like, I don't know, man. You know, like I had been in fights before I boxed anyway, like, uh, uh, you know, getting in trouble in the street and whatnot in school. But, you know, of course, in boxing now, you're starting to do it several times a week. You're sparring on a regular basis, and uh, you're going to compete. You're going to compete as a fighter as well, as, as an amateur boxer. And, uh, you know, when you, you start amateur boxing, at least when I was there at, in the amateurs, the, you know, you, you fought with 10-ounce gloves, so the gloves got smaller, uh, the headgears were thinner, and, uh, you know, you, you competed, and you, you, know, felt, you felt some of the shots worse. But the... Uh, and then, you know, obviously as a pro, you obviously go into even smaller gloves, more aerodynamic gloves. You know, they're even more damaging because professional boxing is made for damage. Uh, people pay to watch damage. People pay to watch guys get hurt. So, you know, you're going to be able to do more damage, but you're also going to be taking more damage, you know. And, of course, you lose the headgear as well, so that causes clashes of heads. It causes uh, cuts. It causes a lot of other things that uh, maybe weren't as commonplace in the amateurs. So it takes me, you know, I was going to go into this uh, with you guys, you know, the hardest punches I took. So, you know, obviously the hardest puncher I ever fought is Miguel Cotto. I've gone into this. If I'm sure people have, you know, discussed uh, this and, and, you know, I've heard me say this plenty of times, you know, that Miguel Cotto is the hardest puncher I ever fought. But the, the, the most hurt I, was, I ever was in, uh, as in my whole boxing career, amateur or pros, was actually in the amateurs. I got stopped one time in the amateurs. And it was, uh, uh, it's the only time that I ever actually felt like a separation from consciousness, com like completely for a couple of seconds, you know? In, in the end, I actually wound up beating the count, but um, the referee stopped the fight while I was on the ground. But 
in those moments, you know, where I, it, it's the only time I can really describe it as like uh, what you see in like a Rocky movie, you know, where Rocky's imagining like he's going down slowly. You know, it really, that was the only time I've been hurt in all, I mean, you guys have seen it. I've been hurt in the pros. I've been down in the pros. I've been even really rock badly in the pros, but I never, it was never to the point of like losing a sense of where I was for a second. You know, uh, I know some guys get a sense of losing a sense of where they were for a while, you know, um, but basically this fight, I had in the amateurs, I had a guy named Darling Jimenez who was uh, my rival and uh, he was a big phenom in the New York area. Uh, he was probably the guy that everybody in, in the New York metro area was looking at to be the next star uh, to, you know, excel in professional boxing when he turned pro. You know, every generation, especially in New York, you know, we have our guys that we kind of look at as like, okay, this guy's got a lot of potential to go places to become a, a star as a professional boxer. And some guys fall off and some guys don't. But obviously, every generation, every quadrennial, you know, every quadrennial is, uh, you know, the, an Olympic year. You know, you get guys that turn pro and you get a new set of guys coming up from the JOs, coming up from the juniors. And, and you know, they're looking at these guys as, as the stars. And I remember, my, you know, my generation had some pretty good fighters. You know, I myself had Luis Colazzo. Uh, even Yuri Foreman came and moved from... Uh, from uh, uh, Belarus to New York, and he was competing a lot in the New York amateur area, and also did very well, and he also ended up becoming a world champion later on. But the phenom of my generation was Darling Jimenez. Um, was also Shamir Reyes, actually. Uh, he was uh, uh, in, the, in the JOs, but he turned pro when he won the national JO title. So Shamir Reyes actually never fought as a, as a senior in the, in the men's division. And now as the men's division, when I was an amateur, it was 16 and a half and older. And Shamir Reyes was uh, uh, a guy who, uh, a southpaw kid, he was trained in my gym. I actually used to spar him when I first started. He used to actually beat my ass. Uh, he was a, a, a southpaw. You know, I was just learning to spar. I was learning to, I was learning the boxing in general. And Shamir had won, just won a national JO title. But Don King was heavily after Shamir. And Shamir, instead of staying in the amateurs and fighting men in the amateurs, which looking back now, at the time I had no clue how important that was. But for me now, looking back now, I feel like it's important that you, st you start to fight your first grown men as an amateur and not as a pro. Like, you know, you, I don't feel like a, a kid who has a lot of success in the jails should go directly pro from, a j from, from, the, jail, from the jail success. And uh, Shamir did that. Um, I haven't seen too many guys have a successful pro career. Uh, from having done that, but Shamir was a good fighter, and he signed. The thing is, he signed with Don King, and Don King, you know, at, at, by that point, still had a big reputation, but by that point, also had lost a lot of dates, and was, you know, had, was getting less and less TV dates, and less and less had less and less uh, influence over the sport of professional boxing. Um, make a long story short, Shamir turned pro. Uh, otherwise, he would have been competing in the Golden Gloves when I got there, because I didn't have an amateur career in the uh, JOs. I started boxing late. I started boxing at 16, but by the time I had my first amateur fight, I was 17 years old. So I got thrust into this this circle of people, and I had a lot of catching up to do. You know, I won a novice New York Golden Gloves right away, but then I'm in the open division where now I've got to fight these guys. And you know, the guys in my weight class were both Shamir Reyes and Darling Jimenez, who were both looked at as you know future phenoms. I guess I was sort of fortunate that Shamir ended up turning pro and I didn't have to deal with him in the New York Golden Gloves, but Jimenez still remained. And so I had to deal with him and he was in my weight class, you know, as was Shamir, but Shamir turned pro. So uh, make a long story short, short on Shamir's situation. He signed with Don King and he kind of, they, Don ended up uh, kind of using him up. I know Shamir got beat uh, uh, by a guy named William Abelian, I remember. And then, uh, and then um, uh, Antonio Cermeno, who actually uh, had, was an ex-world champion by that point, or he became a world champion after, I don't know. Cermeno actually uh, wound up getting killed in Venezuela. He got kidnapped uh, by uh, some rebels or whatnot, and they wanted ransom money. They, that's, you know, rest in peace, Antonio Cermeno, who was a good fighter. But he stopped Shamir as well. 
And so uh, that kind of, uh, you know, King didn't really get Shamir to where he, I felt like Shamir had the potential to go to. But Darling remained in the amateurs. And, me and, and so I started competing, and all of a sudden everybody's talking about, you know, this kid Jimenez, and I've got to kind of get through him because now I've won the open, I've won the novice division, and now I got to go to the open, and he's the the guy in the open division in my weight class. And literally, it started becoming a regular thing where I was really becoming a prodigy, where I was excelling really fast. I was getting better and better every tournament I was doing. But the problem was in New York, I was running into Darling in all the finals, and Darling had a lot of experience. Darling probably, you know, I don't know for sure. But I think the first time I fought Darling, he probably had over 60, 70 amateur fights. And I went into the fight with about eight fights, eight amateur fights. And this is the fight where I got stopped. Um, also, you'll notice in this fight, um, I, I was front foot heavy. I had actually pulled my calf muscle a few weeks before playing uh, 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 football at the park. <laughs> and uh, so I fought, the, I fought in this tournament. I fought the semifinals of this tournament with kind of a strained calf muscle. And then I fought the finals of this tournament with a strained calf muscle. I won the I won in the semifinals, and then in the finals, you notice when I'm fighting uh, Jimenez in this video. Uh, if you watch the video, it's on YouTube, um, where I'm kind of front foot heavy, and I never fight on the front foot even back then. Uh, but I had to kind of fight on the front foot because I couldn't put the weight on my back foot, and I I think that also kind of limited my movement because I had I was very awkward uh, at that time. I was still learning a lot, and uh, but I had a lot of athleticism, so I could confuse you. Darlinghead was more set in his style. He was, you know, he, again, he was the guy that everybody was looking at, looking to, to become uh, the phenom in, uh, in professional boxing. He was the guy that, you know, the New York generation really, really looked at. New York Metro, uh, the, the heads of the New York Metro boxing area really looked at Darling as a, as a, a favorite. And it was frustrating for me because I wanted to be so badly to look at that way. Uh, but, of course... You know, I felt like every time I was getting in the ring with him, I felt like there was uh, there were people that were already just considering me lost even before I got in there. You know, I have actually a press clippings of from New York Golden Glove Finals that I fought him in, uh, even going into the finals and going into the tournament finals, where people are talking about him like he's a phenom before we even fight the fights. You know, so I remember being really really frustrated, but it was also very very motivating. But anyway, this fight here where I get stopped, and this is the one of the hardest punches I ever took, maybe the hardest punch I, single punch I ever took, because it's the only punch that ever separated from me from my consciousness, even for the few seconds that it did. And it's the finals of the New York Metro's tournament in late 1998. It's my eighth or ninth amateur fight. And um, I'm, the fight is a five two-minute rounds. At that time, we used to fight five two-minute rounds in the open division, which uh, now they, you know, they've gone back to the three threes. They used to change it all the time in the amateur. They couldn't get their, 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 their stuff together. But, um, you know, this is the, uh, I think the last round. We were only like 20 seconds from the end. And I, I, what he does is he feints me. He feints me with a right hand. And I kind of pull back. You know, we should, you shouldn't pull back square on the ropes. You shouldn't pull back with your chin up on the ropes. Again, I'm making a lot of mistakes. I was very athletic here, but I was not experienced enough to, to not make all the mistakes yet. So he gets me. I'm pulling back. Um, and uh, he fakes me with the right hand, and then he throws a quick left hook right hand, and the, and he and I'm looking I'm looking hook so much because he had he was always his reputation was always for a big hook, and the hook right hand was basically a setup a, a, a decoy hook, and he hits me with a big right hand, and, and and I go down, and you can check it out here. As you see, I'm I'm hurt, I'm rolling over, and the referee stops it right away here. But as you can see, I I end up beating the count. Here's my frustration with the referee. Here's my frustration with the referee. I'm trying to get him off me. My frustration with the referee there was that I will tell you, man, I've, for that second, I went down like I felt like I was in a cloud. Like I went down like I didn't know for a second where I was. I literally, it's the only time it felt like like in the Rocky movie when Rocky's going down really slow. The only time in my whole boxing career that I got hit with a punch and I felt like that. So as you can see, 
I went down like I'm out cold before I before I hit the ground. I went down stiff. And when I hit the ground, I guess it woke me up because I, I, I'm telling myself, oh, man, I'm down. I got to get up. And so I, what do you do when you're down laying down? You roll over to get up, right? You roll, you roll, you're on your back. You roll over. You get on all fours and you get up, right? So when I, But I, I went to roll over too quickly to try to get up, and I was, I was still in a haze. And so when I went to roll over, I was like, oh, my God. Like, what is this? What am I feeling, you know? And I just put my head back down into my gloves, but now I'm on my stomach, and when the referee saw that, he stopped the fight instantly. I guess it's the amateurs. They take precautions. I was pissed because at that point, I looked down into my gloves. I looked up, and, uh, and then I was finally good. You know, I, I, when, I look, when I put my head in my gloves, I like to try to clear my head. and I put, it, it all happens in a, in a few seconds, as you guys can see. But when I do look up again, when, I, when my head is, comes out of my gloves, I'm good, and I just get up. I have no idea that he has stopped the fight when, the, when I rolled over. Um, and I... If you watch the whole thing, I'm kind of pissed about the stoppage. Uh, you know, I'm angry and uh, so on and so forth. It was uh, it was an experience. Uh, you know, at that time I was kind of embarrassed that I had gotten stopped that way. I was, you know, I knew that it was the fight that everybody wanted to see because they wanted to see if I had if the the prodigy level success that I had had um, in just a few amateur fights thus far could transcend against a guy who would really, really you know, was really, really established uh, at that point and, and was, and the New York metro, metro area, the heads of the New York metro area boxing, USA boxing uh, uh, panels, they looked at this guy like he was a future world champion. They looked at him like he was the guy to, to look at. And to be honest, me and Jimenez wound up fighting a bunch of, fi of finals in the, in the amateurs. He beat me five out of six times, but in reality, I was getting better, better every single time out. I had, I had gotten a late start and, I felt like I won the last three, but I only got one decision. Um, we fought three times at 125 pounds. That was the first time. And then when I moved up, coincidentally, he moved up. So we wound up fighting. We wound up catching each other in all the finals of the of the 132-pound division as well in New York. So we would just constantly be in the finals against one another in every single New York tournament. The, it, the frustrating thing was that I couldn't get a decision against him. Uh, first, I couldn't beat him at all. You know, he was really beating me. And then as, uh, uh, as we move to up to, I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't feel like I lost any of the fights I fought him at 132 pounds. I felt like, you know, the 125 pounds, I was still gaining experience, but he beat me. I felt like at 132, I felt like I won all three fights. But nonetheless, um, they were solid, solid experiences. I, I tell people today, you know, without Donald Jimenez, there is no Paulie Malinaji because he gave me a reason to go back to the gym and try to excel and try to get better and better and better, knowing that I was going to see him in every tournament. Because in the amateurs, it's just about tournaments. It's just about, you know, you got to try to win as many tournaments as you can so you build up your resume and people want to sign you. And it was frustrating because in order to get to the nationals, I had to win a New York tournament to represent New York at the Nationals, and I couldn't get by him. So he was going to all the Nationals, and I was—I I felt like really frustrated that I couldn't get that national experience. Um, I remember I went to the 99 National PAL tournament where you can get sponsored to go, and I remember I got sponsored to go. And uh, I went there, and I was like, okay, finally going to get to go to the Nationals. And I think Darling was there too, and we didn't run into each other. But I, who do I draw my first fight? My first fight, I finally get to go to the Nationals. Who do I draw my first fight at the Nationals? Rock Allen. Rock Allen is Nazim Richardson's son. Nazim Richardson, as you guys know, was uh, you know worked with Hopkins. Uh, he's the guy that found the 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 um, 
the uh, uh, plaster of Paris and Margarito's uh, hand wraps. You know, he's a solid, solid trainer. And he had twin sons, Rock and Tiger Allen. They were terrific. As a matter of fact, Tiger Allen had lost the National JO Finals to Shamir Reyes a few years earlier. So these, the, the Allen twins were unbelievable. And they were uh, Nizam Richardson's son, sons. And I draw this guy that my first fight at the National PAL tournament in 99. And I was so aggravated. And I'm like, I'm fine. Because I, I was looking forward to being at the Nationals and saying, now these guys are going to wait till these guys get a load of me. You know, I couldn't get by darling. But now I'm going to show these guys at the Nationals what I can do. I draw Rock Allen. I lose a 3-2 split decision in a fight that I've, I, 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 in a fight that I felt like I won. I, I recently, I think I found this fight. Uh, I might, I might be posting it to uh, the Poly TV page as well. It's my 99 PL tournament final with uh, Rock Allen. Rock ended up, I think, winning the tournament or going to the losing in the finals. And he was, he, but it qualified him for the Olympic trials, which were going on uh, early ne- the next year. Um, either way, again, frustrating, but I'm learning. The amateurs, I, I still really abide by the amateurs, and, and I feel like a, a fighter needs the amateur experience, or especially a high-level amateur experience, in order to get better and better. Uh, I, st- I got a late start. I knew I had a lot of catching up to do, but I never shied away, because in the amateurs, it's not like the pros where you have to build up a record, and, and if you don't build up the right record, you're never going to get your shot. In the amateurs, it doesn't matter. You just enter as many tournaments as you can. You fight as many fights as you can. You don't duck anybody, and it doesn't matter if you don't duck anybody. It doesn't matter if you take an L, really. You know, It just matters how many tournaments you win, how many important big tournaments you can win at the end of the day, that's how, that's what matters. A lot of these guys with padded amateur records or big amateur records, they a lot of them were able to do that when they were JOs and they were fighting other kids. And now the kid, when you're fighting kids, you can overwhelm them, you know, and and, and you can kind of beat them just by overwhelming them. But as a man, when you hit a grown man in the mouth, he's gonna want to hit you back. So you gotta actually fight your way to success in the men's divisions and the amateurs. So I wasn't, you know, I was I I got thrust into this right in the right in the right away I didn't go have a jail career so so I had to fight all these guys right away but you know what it was an important part of my maturing process and getting these guys uh dulling I fought I ended up fighting a bunch of times in in in, in the finals of a, a bunch of tournaments I beat them one time and then we had the New York Golden Glove finals I remember in 2000 I think these fights are on YouTube all of them are on YouTube uh, I think the 99 New York Golden Glove finals was 125 pounds I lost to him then and then I had the New York Golden Glove finals with him in the, in 2000 when I, when I had just beaten him a few months earlier in a, uh, in a finals of another tournament. And I felt like I won this fight. Uh, they went to a, a, a split decision, uh, and they gave it to him. Uh, but we were fighting on a computer scoring system that night, I remember. And uh, they said, I was told that somebody pulled the plug, or somebody stepped on the plug and pulled the plug on the computer scoring system. So they had to go to the back of paper judges, and they gave him a split. I mean, I thought it was total bullshit, which I'll probably always think it was. But nonetheless, I think that they they knew Darling was about to turn pro, so they wanted to uh, send him away with a, you know, with a, with a, uh, uh, a good sending off as an, as another gold, with another Golden Gloves title, but again, either way, when I look back on it, frustrating as it was, without this kid, I wouldn't have had, uh, I wouldn't have become the the fighter I became. As a matter of fact, when Darling ended up going pro, that's it. Now I became the guy in the amateurs in in New York. I became the the man at that weight class because so they knew I had always been fighting him in the finals, and I ended up getting to represent New York at the nationals, and I I won everything. I won the U.S. championships as well. You know, I won every New York tournament that year, and I won the New York U.S. championships as well. I reached the semifinals of the national PAL tournament. Uh, where I lost to Vicente Escobedo, who would later go on to become a 2004 U.S. Olympian. Um, but, I mean, I, I was just became very, very dominant in that year when after Dolan turned pro. And, and, it really, the, and it really showed me. That's when I started realizing all the hard work that I'd put in just because of Dolan, just because, you know, of the fact that he was motivating me 
constantly just wanting to get better and better. Now I had gotten so good and I was continuing to continuing to excel. Then I would him not around. I was mowing through the whole weight class, you know, and I was mowing through the weight, even at the nationals. I won the U S championships and became the number one ranked lightweight in the United States and, and, and the amateurs in my weight class, you know? So, so it was a, it was an important maturing process, but basically the moral of the story is this, that's the hardest punch I ever took. And the moral of the story is, you know, that's when you don't, when you have your failures, that's when you have to most get yourself back up and dust yourself off and use those failures as motivation. That, that's, the, that's, that's the most important thing. You know, they say you fall off a horse or you fall off a motorcycle. You got to get right back on the bike or you got to get right back on the horse right away. Otherwise, you're never going to do it again. It's sort of like that with boxing. I've seen a lot of guys take bad L's in the amateurs. A lot of kids that, you know, I was in the amateurs with t- teenagers. Good fighters. They took bad L's or they even got robbed when they, didn't, they, were, they were so frustrated. I never saw them again in the gym. Good fighters. Good little fighters. And... I feel like that it applies that you have to be at your most motivated when you're feeling at your most down, you know, your motivation actually, ha- the, the being down actually has to be what the trigger is to motivate you the most, you know, and I always use that in boxing, you know? any problems I had in my life in boxing, I always kind of just took it out back in the gym, you know, and it's, I, I would, uh, I would just focus on, um, on the gym and, 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 and I would just kind of leave my problems outside the gym, you know, if I had issues outside the gym, or had issues outside of boxing that would bother me, or even issues in boxing, you know, I would just meditate and focus on my, my, my boxing skills improving and, and getting better and better and better. And I feel like sometimes athletes actually do better in these situations. Sometimes they get distracted, sometimes they don't. It's funny, I was watching the, the Diego Armando Maradona, uh, the uh, former uh, uh, soccer superstar documentary uh, in the last couple of days. It's all in Spanish. If you haven't watched it, it's pretty good. And... Um, it, it was showing like his best, his best year was like the 86, 87 year, right? And he played for Napoli and he won the, the Serie A title with Napoli. And uh, the summer before in 86, he won the World Cup as well. And, I, and he, he went to the World Cup having impregnated two women at the same time. He had his wife, impreg- he had his wife pregnant and had one of his uh, side chicks pregnant. And, you know, it was, you know, months after the World Cup, you know, the, the, the other chick ended up having a son. And then his wife had a daughter a few months later. But what I'm saying is I realized... In that moment, when he left for the World Cup in the summer of 86, he actually left with two women pregnant, knowing he had this problem at home. You know what I mean? Like Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, it's a good problem or I'm not, I'm not excusing any of it. What I'm saying is the way he was able to compartmentalize everything. And then, obviously, all, both babies were born in the months after. And yet, in, the, in those months, he won the World Cup in the summer. Argentina won the 1986 World Cup in Mexico, and he was the star of the team. And then the 86-87 soccer season, he gave Napoli their first ever Italian championship. You know, in the in the months that during those months that the, those babies were all born, you know what I'm saying? He, he ended up having a phenomenal year as, as a whole. So, it, it, I'm just using that on as an example that there are mo- there are things that you can take as negativity, and you can also you can take them as distractions, or you can take them as as something that will uh, uh, break your spirit and 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 make you stop trying or, or, or break your motivation. You can use it as you can say it's that, and then you know you can use make that excuse and say, oh, if that hadn't happened, I would have, I would have, you know, I would have been able to motivate myself. Or, or you can do the opposite, which is, I got these problems. Screw this, man. I'm gonna overcome this problem just by distracting myself in, in my own success. My because if I'm successful, it's gonna be able to solve all of this. It's gonna be able to put the. It's gonna be able to overcome any of this because people will sort of start to view you differently, your public perception changes, uh, the public perception of you changes when you're successful, and suddenly, you know, your your success allows you to overcome certain problems that you thought you might have had, or you thought that they were, uh, they were, uh, they were problems that you could never overcome, you know, and, uh, 
and sometimes that applies even within the with the problems within boxing. I felt like it was very very important when I when I took that knockout loss to to Darling Jimenez to get right back on. And I did. I got right back in. Uh, I entered the New York Golden Gloves uh, a few months later, and I got myself back to the finals of the New York Golden Gloves, and I fought Darling again, you know, and I lost again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I lost on points, but I legitimately lost again. A few months later, we, I went to the Empire State Games, uh, reached the finals. Oh, no, actually, I, called, I think I called Darling in the semis of that tournament and lost again to Darling. Lost it then. Now I moved to 132 pounds. Um, later, and I, 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 I entered the Metro, New York Metro tournament, 132 pounds. And I'm thinking, okay, Dolan's at 125. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steamroll this weight class. Nope. Guess who shows up at 132 pounds signing up for the tournament? Dolan Jimenez. So guess what happens? Me and Dolan reach our finals against each other again. And Dolan beats me again. But this was a fight that I thought I won. I thought I won this fight. Um, and then uh, um, we got, we ended up fighting in, an, in what's called the Eastern Box Off. It was, uh, it was to get us qualified for the Eastern Olympic Trials. And I beat him in the, in the finals of that tournament in the Eastern Box Off in New York. And then we ended up fighting in the New York Golden Gloves a few months later, and that's the one where I told you uh, I felt like I won, but they, uh, the, the, the somebody pulled the pl somebody pulled the plug. The biggest the, and there's two days of New York finals in the New York Golden Gloves. Uh, it's a Thursday night and a Friday night. It's a women's and men's finals, and I gotta say that in 2000, the most looked, the most anticipated final of the New York Golden Gloves was me versus Darling. I mean, at that point, we were both ranked in the top five in the nation. Actually, uh, I was ranked four, and he was ranked two. So you got two top five national fighters fighting in the finals of a New York tournament. Everybody's looking forward to this fight. And they, and they told me the plug. Somebody pulled the plug. And of all fights in that fight, of all finals in that fight, I know. But anyway, I remember just wanting to be so, being so pissed off. It's funny because uh, Darling turned pro after that. And I, uh, I, they, so, they, so they sent me to the National Golden Gloves. I got to the quarters. I won two fights. I got to the quarters. I lost to Urbano and Tion. Also in a 3-2 split decision. I lost a bunch of split decisions in the amateurs. But Urbano was close. It could have went either way. Funny thing about Urbano, he actually had a decent pro career. He ended up fighting for a world title against Brandon Rios. He got knocked out against Brandon Rios. But he reached the level of fighting for a world title. Urbano ended up winning the National Golden Gloves. Uh, uh, he ended up advancing to the semis and the finals and winning them. But his toughest fight of that tournament was against me. It's just we ended up having, you know, he won a split against me, but we ended up having our our head-to-head -head matchup in the quarters. So I knew already, like, I was getting there. You know, I, I kind of knew already I was getting there. And, and it's funny because I, I initially said to myself, I'm going to turn pro uh, in 2000 after the Olympics, whether I make it or not. But I, but when I was starting to compete at the Nationals in 2000, I said, you know what, I'm, I need another year. And you know what? That was the best, the smartest decision I could have made because that one year I won everything. I got my confidence up. I became U.S. champion. Uh, um, I won another New York Golden Glove title, uh, and I won everything else in New York. And then I also won, became a national champion. And then that kind of catapulted me into my pro career. The hardest puncher I ever fought, though, uh, winds up becoming uh, Miguel Cotto. I mean, con the consistency of his punching power was unbelievable. You know, I just I went into the fight watching his knockouts and thinking to myself, ah, oh, man, you know what? These look vicious. I'm going to probably get hit harder in this fight than I've ever been hit in my life. But I'm going to put that in my mind. I'm going to keep burying that into my mind the whole training camp, that I'm going to get hit harder this fight than I've ever been hit in my life. And sometimes I would try to overcompensate opponents. Like, I remember when I fought Lovemore and Doe, I remember told myself, because he was like a major stalker. He gave everybody hellacious problems stalking them with tons of pressure. And I remember telling myself, I'm going to be under the most stress, the most pressure I've ever been under in my life. And I overcompensated. I ended up beating him easily. I ended up handling the pressure very easily. So sometimes I overcompensated it and it helped me mentally. So I was kind of hoping the year before with Kodo when I was saying I was going to get hit so hard in my mind. I was kind of hoping I was overcompensating. But the first shot he hit me with, I was like, nah, 
this guy is just as hard as I feared he would, you know, and, and it was a man, was he, was he a major puncher at 140 pounds? And even at 147, I thought he was a pretty big puncher, but uh, concerning what he did to the 147 pounders. But either way, um, the, the shot he knocked me down with broke my orbital bone. We've gone into that before, you know. The consistency of his punching power was really, really sick. His jab was like a, like, like a, like a ramrod, you know what I mean? I mean, his jab was like harder than right hands, right? Some people's right hands that I've taken, you know, like some people's right crosses or left crosses that I've taken, just his jab, you know? I mean, obviously he was a, a converted southpaw, he was a natural lefty, but his, the heaviness of his jab was sick. And so it didn't surprise me when over the course of his career, I saw him drop two guys with that jab. He dropped Alfonso Gomez with a jab and he dropped Joshua Clotty with a jab. And it didn't shock me. Like that's how heavy this guy's jab was. And I was like, you know what? I, and it's funny because I was watching both fights with, with people that I knew uh, and they like, God, are you dropping with a jab? I'm like, bro, this guy's jab is a different level. I'm telling you, this guy's jab is like a like a like a boulder hitting your face. You know, like you really, really, it's not an average jab. <laughs> so I I didn't feel so bad when I saw those guys going down from the jab because I can remember just being really uncomfortable with the heaviness of his jab and being like, oh my God, even this guy's jab, it's so heavy, you know. But he was probably the hardest overall puncher, consistent puncher that I ever uh, ever fought. The 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 most concussed I probably was in a um in a in, in my professional career probably it's probably the Sean Porter fight um I got hit with a bunch of rabbit punches though I gotta be honest so it's kind of like a little bit iffy there but I, I nonetheless I I I took a uh you know it was really bad I had to go to the hospital uh I had really post-concussion syndromes for months after that fight so that was uh pretty bad but I never actually lost like the sense of where I was. You see, like, with the Jimenez knockout in the, in, in the amateurs, the Jimenez knockout in the amateurs, I told you, like, I, I kind of lost. Like, I kind of I'm kind of just felt like I was floating when I was hurt, and I was just badly hurt and down. With Porter, I never, like, I never not knew where I was. But it was just, like, thudding shots, and they just they just hurt bad. And I don't know if it was the fouls. I, I haven't watched that fight back a lot, you know, because I just didn't want to revisit that when it happened. But um, I, didn't, I, never, I, didn't, I didn't feel the referee took very much control of that fight. He kind of just let it happen. But either way, by the end of the fight, um, you know, I was really concussed really badly. Um, I had to go to the hospital. I was thrown up. Um, and I was, uh, I was, I had a lot of post-concussion symptoms after that fight. The one interesting fight, which is random, and this could have actually changed my whole career. And I, t I got hurt really badly in this fight. And, I, and people will never realize how badly I got hurt. I was fighting Chris Fernandez. Probably the best single shot I took in my, in my whole professional boxing career in terms of it almost ended a fight in one shot, you know. Um, was Chris Fernandez you know, randomly, and a fight a fight that I won almost every single round. Um, I'm 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 fighting an eight rounder uh, after the Ricky Hatton fight, uh, and I need like a comeback win. So Chris Fernandez is not a great record. He's kind of a journeyman kind of guy, but a decent fighter, you know, capable. And you know, never had a really key win in his career. Fought you know, guys like Devin Alexander and got stopped and all this other stuff. You know, just just a run of the mill guy. But we were, we were needed to fight a run of the mill guy in order to uh, get ourselves back on the horse and get on back on the winning ways after the after the Ricky Hatton fight. And I'm dominating this guy. And I've gotten with Sharif Unit. He was a trainer. He's he was a kind of a speed uh, speed uh, a slick kind of uh, style of trainer, which is I kind of wanted to get back on on a trainer like that because I had gotten away from that with Buddy McGirt, and I felt like it was going away from. I felt like I had gone away from what got me there to begin with, which was a speed flash style. So I um, I changed trainers after the Hatton fight, and I went to Sharif Yunin, who was a speed flash guy, and I said, "Now nah, I got to get back. And I remember my trainers asking me, like, you know, you just went from a former trainer of the year to uh, 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 to a guy that, you know, a lot, a lot of people know, and, you know, my, a lot of people that I knew were telling me that, but I was like, you know what? I listened to everybody else the last time, and it didn't go well. 
So I, I think that I need to go with a guy who kind of I feel is conducive to my style. And and Yunan was very conducive to my style. As a matter of fact, he's got a son named Junior Yunan who's an undefeated prospect right now. Check him out. Um, he's uh, pretty dangerous himself and I think can do some damage in, in, uh, in, uh, in the professional boxing game. He's about 16 or 17 or no now. But... Junior Yunus' father, Sharif, was uh, Junior, by the way, I know since he's a kid, is he grew up in the gym. But um, Sharif was a speed flash guy, and so we were going back working on all that speed flash stuff, you know, all the stuff that had gotten, made me who I was, you know, and, and was naturally conducive to my athletic style. And so we get our first fight together with, with Fernandez. It was a kind of a comeback win we needed that, uh, you know, after the Hatton fight so that we can be positioned to get back into big fights. Because now we've been fighting big fights for a couple of years. You know, Apple Cotto in 06, I lost the Hatton in 08. This is early 2009. And I get in there. I, it was on the, I remember it was on the Carl Frosch versus, versus Jermaine Taylor on the card. And this fight was Frosch and Taylor, first of all, is one of the best fights you'll watch. If you haven't watched that, that's a sick, sick fight. But I was on the, on the off-TV portion of the card, and I was fighting uh, sort of, and they put it like on a, on a separate Broadway boxing event where it was on local TV in New York. And I fought Chris Fernandez, and I'm pretty much dominating the fight. You know, I'm, doing, I'm fighting this flash speed style, and I'm dominating the fight with Chris Fernandez. And, and end of, at the end of the sixth round, I end up taking a, a, a good shot. See, as you can see some of the highlights here, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing all the flash stuff that I had, had been lacking for the past year. You know, uh, I wanted to just go back, have fun in there, be myself. And, uh, you know, and, and do well. And at the end, at the very end of the sixth round, I hear the 10 second tap. When boxers know the 10 second tap, it's that, you know, when the warning that 10, 10 seconds left in the round. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to bounce around here in the corner and the bell's going to ring and I'm going to get out. And he throws, he fakes a, he fakes a left hook. And I, I, I kind of make an athletic move at the end of the round where he fakes a left hook and I kind of go to ride with the hook. You know, I, I kind of roll to my, towards my left. And, when I do that, here it is. Is this right here? Look right there. I run. I, he actually fakes the hook and he hits me with a right hand instead. That hurts me. So now I'm trying to hold him and he hits me with a follow up uppercut and hook because I couldn't hold him tight enough. And there I'm hurt as badly as I'm gonna be, bro. Right there I'm hurt as badly as I'm gonna be. You don't. I don't think people realize how. If this was mid round, I'm telling you, I would have got knocked out. That's how badly he hurt me. I could not believe it. And you see, I'm just messing around. I hear the 10 second tap. I'm making a miss. I'm making a miss all night, really. And I'm just and I'm just trying to get back into my athletic style ways. Trying to get back into a normal rhythm style. See right there. That right hand hits me. Why do I why did I bend that way towards the right hand? Because he faked with the hook right before that. And instead of blocking or making a, a reasonable fundamental move on a left hook, which even if I would have bit on it, wouldn't have got me hit with that right hand, I tried to make an athletic move. And I, I with my hands down, I, I tried to ride with the hook. Where basically I thought it was coming from this direction. So I was gonna ride with it and make it miss. And the bell was gonna ring, and that was it, because I had already heard that 10-second tap. Instead, what ends up happening. He fakes and he throws the right hand and I bend right into the right hand and it hurts me. It hurts me so bad that when I go to hold him, I don't hold him tight enough. And he follows up with an uppercut hook and really blasts me. Look how I fall on the ropes here. Look, I actually fall against the ropes here. I would have went down. This shot would have dropped me down. Look, I, I, if the ropes aren't there, I go down right there. You know, so then I just spear him because I don't, I'm so hurt. that I'm just like, I said, I got I to gotta hold him at all costs. I get my, I make my way back to the corner and uh, I'm winning the fight easily. But now I'm like, yo, that one hurt bad. I, and I remember the whole minute going by. This is my cut man, Danny Milano, in the ring in, in the corner. Now he's trying to pull my hair, wake me up. Best cut man in boxing, by the way, Danny Milano. Excellent, excellent. I had him my whole career. Excellent cut man. Uh, so I go back to my corner, and the minute passes, and I'm, I'm telling myself, like, oh, my God, like, I'm still hurt. Like, I, like again, again, I, I, never, I never again felt like I, like I did when I got hit with Jimenez, where for a couple of seconds I actually didn't know where I was. With every other time I've been hurt in my career, I've known that I'm hurt. And just like, I'm, I'm just got to get myself together. I'm, I'm getting up off the stool and I'm like, 
I'm still hurt. Can you believe I'm still hurt? I, I just went through a whole minute. I'm still hurt right now. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? Instead of boxing him from the outside, I'm going to try to go chest to chest and just kind of ch- catch and shoot, try to roll. Try, again, try to beat him athletically, but not take too many chances. I boxed him on the outside. I boxed him a little bit on the inside. I figured on the inside I would box him. He couldn't get leverage on his shots if I could smother him and then kind of just touch him up the, with, with some inside boxing. Another ironic thing, there's two in between rounds. This was an eight-rounder. So that means I came back again another round. I came back at the end of the seventh round in the corner. I did not even realize I came back again to the corner. When I watched this fight on video, when I got the video a few weeks later, I watched this fight and I said, oh, my God, I came. I made two more trips to the corner. I didn't remember. I don't even remember the second trip I made to the corner. I don't remember going back to the corner between the seventh and eighth round. I don't remember any of that at all. I remember getting hurt, the belt saving me, going back Starting the next round still hurt, and I don't. And I, I, I remembered thinking I just fought the last round, and that was it. Instead, I actually fought the seventh, went back to my corner, listened to a minute of instructions, went back out for the eighth, and fought the eighth round too. I don't remember between the seventh and eighth round at all. I don't remember at all. And I, I did a post fight interview. I don't remember the post fight interview until I saw it on video. Um, and then um, I went back to the dressing room. And I remember I wanted to, you know, take a shower and, and go watch the main event because it was, you know, Frock and, 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 and Jermaine Taylor was going to be a great fight. And it ended up, be, surely it, did end up, it ended up wound up becoming just as good as it was, it was, it was hyped. But it, the co-feature was Alan Green against Carlos De Leon Jr. Uh, Carlos De Leon, people may, uh, the old historians may remember him. He was a cruiserweight world champion who lost his title to Evander Holyfield in the 80s. De Leon Jr., his son, was a pretty good fighter. And he was fighting Alan Green, who was a solid prospect at the, to- at the time. And uh, I remember being in the shower, and there was a TV in the dressing room, and I'm kind of in the shower. My, I hear my team, like, watching the fight, and I'm just kind of shower, washing my hair, I remember. And all of a sudden, I hear my team, like, oh! And I put my head out, out the shower. I poke my, I peek my head out the shower, like, yo, what happened? And De Leon had just been dropped by Alan Green. And that was, I remember everything after that moment. It's like, that was the moment that I woke up. It was like, like, up until that moment, I'm in a haze. I don't remember walking back to the dressing room. I don't remember walking uh, 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 to uh, doing the post-fight interview. I don't remember even jumping in the shower. I just remember being in the shower, shampooing my hair, and my team is saying, oh, and then there's a TV screen inside the dressing room. So I peek my head out the shower because, you know, there's a curtain. And I just peek my head out the shower like, yo, what happened? And they're like, oh, Dylan just got dropped. And so I finished my, my shower. I went downstairs, and, and that was it. We, we went to watch the main event. I remember everything after that, but... It's funny because that from that punch at the end of the sixth round all the way to that moment, everything is a blur, man. It's crazy. And I had never felt that before to that extent that for that long of a period of time. But Junior Jones, I used to spar Junior Jones, the ex-bantamweight uh, and super featherweight world champion. He, ends, uh, he had some good wins in his career. He beat Marco Antonio Barrera. He gave Marco Antonio Barrera his first two losses of his career, actually. He beat Orlando Canizales as well. Uh, he was, Junior was a, a good fighter, but he would randomly lose to guys he wasn't supposed to lose to, just randomly. But he'd also beat guys he wasn't supposed to beat. He was a very good fighter. I used to spar him in New York. And I remember Junior told me when he won his first world title against Jorge Lesser Julio uh, at, at Bantamweight, the WBA Bantamweight title. Junior, by the way, was a massive Bantamweight. He was my height, but he fought at 118 at the beginning of his career. He was massive, broad shoulders, big right-handed puncher. And I was, when I was first starting out, I was a 125-pounder in the amateurs, so we could spar a lot. We did a lot of sparring. And I remember Junior telling me about when he won his first world title. He said, I got dropped in the second round. I don't remember the rest of the fight. I just fought it on instinct, and I, and I won the fight on points. And I remember thinking, like, yo, how do you just fight 10 rounds and don't remember the fight? That's crazy, bro. That's crazy. And sure enough, you know, in, in, my, little, uh, uh, in my little experience there with Chris Fernandez, it was, I, unfortunately, I don't have a, I don't, I'm not able to brag that it happened in a big title fight or anything. But it's crazy because I'll tell you what. If this shot I take happens middle of a round, I probably get knocked out. 
But I, I'm so hurt I couldn't even hold him tight. As you can saw, he was able to follow up with, a, with an uppercut and a left hook. So I, while he hit me with that right hand, I thought I was holding him tight. I was not even holding him tight enough. And he hit me with the, the follow-up uppercut left hook that, that made me sit my ass on the rope and then made me spear him. And then, then luckily the bell rang after that. But if I am in, if there is like half a round left, I probably don't get out of that round. That's what's crazy. And if I don't get out of that round after just having lost to Ricky Hatton and looking like dog poop, like <laughs> dog poo poo, <laughs> to not curse, or uh, a few months before in the Ricky Hatton loss. Um, and if I get knocked out by Chris Fernandez right after that, I am done. That's it. My career is done. People are never going to view me the same way again. People are going to think, oh, I'm shot. I'm ruined. And I would never, ever, ever get another title and another big shot again. It's crazy how you need a little bit of luck as well. So my luck was that it was right at the end of the round in a fight that I was easily winning, mind you. I mean, I was easily dominating and I was just trying to have fun. I was trying to get back to the, doing the things that I had, had gotten me so far in my career as they had gotten me. And, um... My luck was that it happened at the end of a round. I wound up beating him. And my next fight, I wound up getting what? Which fight was my next fight? The Juan Diaz fight in Houston. The one everybody knows about where I went crazy in the post-fight interview. And look how sharp I was. But you would have never seen that if Chris Fernandez lands that punch in the middle of the round. That's what's crazy. So boxing, combat sports in general are crazy because... Any punch can do anything at any given point, any given time. You know, it can change trajectories of careers. And sometimes I see guys, they get caught, and you get caught maybe at the wrong time of the round, and then you get yourself knocked out, you know? And it's, it's crazy because you see certain guys that don't come back from certain things. They're either they're not given opportunities or they lost their own confidence. And, I, I, you know, I feel like that could have happened to me, you know, especially at that moment in time where I had just lo looked really badly losing to Ricky Hatton. If I lose to Chris Fernandez and, and get knocked out by him, even if I was winning the whole fight prior to that, I'm telling you, people would have never, ever viewed me the same way again. I would have never, ever get, gotten the shots I got. Instead, what happened? I ended up going into the Juan Diaz fights, uh, fighting two Juan Diaz fights, fighting Amir Khan the next year losing. But a few years later, I wound up winning a welterweight world title. So I ended up becoming a world champion even, even after this. But I don't think any of it would have happened if Chris Fernandez would have hit me with that right hand in the middle of a round instead of the uh, end of a round, you know? So that is basically those are the kind of the biggest shots I took uh, in my career. There were other moments where, you know, I felt shots. Uh, I, I think Herman and Gujo hit me with a good right hand in one of the rounds and kind of rot stung me a little bit. Um, but I'm, as far as what I remember, the biggest punches I took in my career, you know, I kind of just went over all of them. And, uh, you know, people are always curious about these things. They're always curious about, you know, what does it feel like? Not every punch feels like this. Most punches don't feel like this. Um, and, and rarely in sparring. I've never really been hurt in sparring, you know, like you, because the gloves are too big, too heavy to be hurt in sparring. I've been dropped in sparring. I actually drop guys in sparring. Uh, but really, you, you, you do feel guys' heavy-handedness in sparring, but it's not heavy-handedness enough to where you, you're going to get stopped unless you want to get stopped. I mean, don't get me wrong. You do see certain guys get knocked out in sparring. It never happened like that to me. And I, even when I had guys down in sparring, it never was like, oh, okay, like he got hurt really badly. You know, um, it's... Uh, Actually, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I was fighting a kid, uh, I was sparring a kid named Edgar Santana and uh, uh, getting ready for my rematch with Paul Delgado. Delgado was a kid uh, who was actually very crafty. He wound up fighting for a world championship later in his career. He was a, kind of, he was a very crafty guy, but never really got uh, treated like an A-side fighter. And I was fighting him on the Arturo Gatti versus Mickey Ward 2 on the card. And I had actually been told by the doctor that I needed surgery on my knuckles. These, these scars on, on, on my right hand, on my knuckles, they're from that surgery. And, but, and I, I, had, I had fought a fight October 13th, but November 23rd was scheduled uh, Gotti Ward 2, and I was on that undercard. So after this fight, October 13th, I see the doctor, and he's like, well, you need surgery. We're going to have to get surgery. I'm like, hell, no, you're not. I'm not doing surgery right now. I'm, I'm scheduled to fight on the Arturo Gotti Mickey Ward card. I'm fighting on that card. Arturo was my favorite fighter growing up. I'm going to fight on this undercard. I don't care what anybody tells me. So I went in there with a hurt hand, and, and 
I certainly, I mean, I'm not going to say I underestimated the opponent, but I think the opponent could have been probably a little bit easier at that point in my career, especially with uh, with the uh, injury that I was going into the fight with. Um, and Delgado wound up becoming that kind of guy where he got he ended up excelling enough to where he ended up fighting for a world championship. So obviously he was no slouch for me to be fighting him with going into a fight with an injury was dumb of me and probably not so smart of my team that made the matchup. But um, I fought the fight. I won a split decision. Um, I got booed out of the ring. I didn't look so great. Uh, and Delgado winds, winds up upsetting a couple of guys after that. I think one of them was actually from Emmanuel Stewart's Kronk Gym. So this guy's talking. For, for a year, we ended up... Um, we ended up, um, you know, uh, talking trash to each other. And finally, we made the fight on the Vitaly Klitschko, Kirk Johnson undercard. And I had a good camp for this fight. And it was an eight-rounder again, just like the first time it was. I had a good camp for this fight, and it was a great card to be on. Uh, Vitaly Klitschko versus Kirk Johnson at Madison Square Garden. And uh, two weeks before, one of my last sparring sessions, I'm sparring against Santana. And Santana was a good puncher. I remember even in sparring, he was a good puncher. And... Um, he just didn't throw a lot. And a lot of, a lot of, the thing about a lot of heavy-handed guys is they don't throw a lot of punches because they have to set their feet in order to throw the shot. And unless they see a perfect opportunity to throw and land it, they won't throw. They'll keep their hands at home. You, you notice this with a lot of heavy punchers because they have to be, be sat and stable on their feet. And Santana was kind of like this. So a lot of times when I was spar Santana, he was good, but he, would, he wouldn't throw a lot of punches. So it, 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 it would sort of you know make the work a little bit uh, tedious. So... Like an idiot, I said, you know what, I'm going to work on, because I, I always liked James Tony. I always enjoyed watching James Tony. I said, I'm going to start working on some James Tony stuff where I'm, uh, you know, chest to chest, uh, which is actually what I did with Chris Fernandez after he hurt me. I, I figured, you know, that chest to chest, close, close to closeness fight where I'm, you, you're touching me and I'll catch and shoot with little uppercuts and little touches. I, I figured, you know, I always tried to practice that here and there because I always liked James Tony. Obviously, I could do, never do it anywhere near as good as James Tony, but I always thought it was an effective thing to have in your arsenal if, if you could get away with it against certain guys, you know, work on that catch and shoot on the inside and being, being close, close to one another. So I was working on it with Santana and he, Santana throws a, a, a body shot, left hook to the body. And I, I go to catch it. I go to catch it to the elbow and I come up with an uppercut, you know, which was like automatic for me. I, it, was, it was the catch and shoot that I like to practice the most, which is to catch the body shot and shoot an uppercut. Cause the, the shot that they're throwing the hook with is, is the side that they're supposed to be protecting their head, their head with. So if they're throwing the hook, they're, they're, that side of their face is open. So automatically, I would catch the body shot and come up with an uppercut. And it was, oh, it was a very good move. The only thing is Santana did something even smarter than that. He threw the hook to the body, but he, he threw it in combination. He threw a hook to the body overhand right. So it was bang, bang. So when I went to catch the hook and come with an uppercut, I actually came up into the overhand right. He hits me, and I go down. I remember I went down and went back. I got back up. I kind of like did a circle around the ring list to make sure my legs were there. And I touched gloves, and we kept sparring. A little bit embarrassing. We finished the sparring, and it was just funny because um, I was doing sit-ups after that. And one of my uh, one of my friends from the gym, uh, Blimp was his name, was a trainer. I was doing some sit-ups, and another guy comes over. He just walked into the gym. He goes, oh, what's up, Paulie? How you been? And Blimp was sitting right there, and he had seen the sparring. He goes, eh, up and down. <laughs> so, so, so we were laughing about it. But I remember thinking to myself, again, it, it, it's mental. It's, it's the things that, the way you approach things. Uh, are you going to let them break you? Or are you going to let them frustrate you? I could have told myself, man, I'm fine in two weeks in Madison Square Garden. Like, I... I how did I get myself dropped? I could have focused on that. But you know what I focused on instead? I focused on, I'm so sharp. I got myself dropped because I was working on something, you know? And I, and I, I, I that's all I, I told myself. And I was not, it, it didn't even bother me, man, honestly. It was a good shot. It was legitimately a knockdown. And I told him, and, and it was a good shot. I mean, like, I was like, whoa, you know? Because that's rare in sparring. You know, you get hit like that. Uh, you take that kind of punch. 
Um, I've been in a lot of gym wars and, you know, not, not taking those shots. And I know people, every time people talk about sparring with me, they want to talk about Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor hits nowhere near as hard as everybody thinks he hits uh, and, and did no such damage to me at all. He, he's, he's got one punch in his arsenal. Uh, he can't throw it in combination. There is nothing there that sh it should make anybody fearful of Conor McGregor or his boxing. I think he's a very, very, very poor boxer. And I think even journeyman guys will beat him. But, um, Do you but, have Jake Paul beating him? Um, I think Jake Paul has a, a an overhand right that's dangerous, but I don't know if he's consistently going to be able to get away from the one punch McGregor has. McGregor has one punch. He's a left hand. I don't think it's that hard. I'm not going to say he's going to knock out Jake Paul with it, but it can land. I do think McGregor's sharpness on his left hand can make him land it consistently over and over again, and I don't see Jake Paul having the kind of defense that even will make him adjust to that. What about you know? the size difference? The size difference? Yeah, it, it could help. It could help. The size difference could help. I mean, listen— Here's how you beat Connor. Connor you just got to put Connie in, in a situation where he's uncomfortable. You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't necessarily have to hit him with one big shot. You just press him. You just press him. And when you press him, you bring the bitch out of him. You know? and you, it's a guarantee. It will come out of him. If, if you press him enough and you put him on the, in enough, in, under enough duress, the bitch will come out of him. So that's really – and I, I just don't know that um, uh, Paul has the consistency to do that. You know? uh, he, he might, you know, I, 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 but that's all you got to do. You just got to make Connor work when he doesn't want to work. You know? the, I mean, that's how you beat a lot of guys, but they'll fight you back. Connor has, wants nothing to do with that kind of fight at all. As soon as you're putting him in that kind of fight, he's actually looking for a way out the door already. Like he's 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 got no balls at all. So so it's like, and I know that's like the expression. Like everybody's like, oh, you say no, but he literally has no balls. Like when a guy for me, that's the main character trait I look at in 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 any fighter is like how do they handle discomfort. Anytime this guy gets put in discomfort, he's got no balls. I mean, he's looking for a, he's looking for any way he can get out of the fight, and he finds it somehow. He finds it, but but he's looking for any way out of the fight, and it, it's it's a consistent trait that he'll never be able to get rid of because you're born with that. You're either born with balls, and I'm sorry, you know, his parents had no balls too because that's that's where he got his genetics from. Genetics from, you know, you either have that or you don't. You can't teach that. You can't you can't tell somebody that. Uh, you can repeat that over and over again, but the way they will act when they're under duress is the way they're gonna always act when if they're under duress. You either have that character trait or you don't have that character trait. Um, but nonetheless, um, yeah. So when it came to the sparring, uh, going back to my my best punches I took, uh, Connor's not one of them at all. Um, uh, but but Santana that time it was a it was another interesting one in the gym. That's probably the best shot I ever took in the gym was from uh, Edgar Santana that dropped me. I've been dropped all the times in the gym. I even knocked down some guys. There was actually a sparring session with Ed Edelmiro Tiger Martinez was a, a lightweight contender where we dropped each other in this one sparring session. I mean, I got to tell you, there was four times, three or four times where I got dropped and I dropped people in, in sparring in my whole career. And that's it. And two of those times were in one sparring session. Me and Tiger dropped each other in the same sparring session. It was pretty wild, you know? Um... It, but it was one of those crazy gym wars in Gleason's gym, bro. I mean, it was just, uh, I don't know, you, the, the wars you had in Gleason's and then years later on wildcard gym, those are some of the best punches you take or some of the best punches you see sometimes are given in these gyms, in these kind of gym wars, you know, between two capable fighters and two top-level fighters, you know, when you get, sometimes you'd have, you know, sparring sessions between two top-level guys that, you know, people should have probably been charged at the door to watch them, you know, they would be that good, you know, but when you've got a competitive gym like that, it, it, it's really, really amazing, and I, I, I was fortunate enough in my career to be part of two gyms like that, uh, Gleason's gym first and then wildcard gym later. And uh, it was, it was. I, I don't think I would have been the fighter I was, and I became without the, those experiences of training in places like that. So shout out to those two gyms as well. And that's kind of the story. That's kind of. The, I guess I give you a couple of backstories today. You know, with uh, the best punches I took in my career, and um, the uh, the rivalry I had with Jimenez. You know, it's a rivalry that I, I always look back on fondly now, because uh, his experience was something that I needed to 
go through. I needed to experience his experience. And despite him having so much more experience than me, the fact that I was against his experience all the time made me a better, better fighter. And I sort of, you kind of, to put a, to show my age, because I don't think a lot of you guys out there might know what a fast forward button is. It kind of hit the fast forward button on my progression in my career because I had experiences like this with Darling. You know, I would lose a final and again against him and I'd be so frustrated, go home so pissed, not sleep that night and just be like, you know what? I'm going back to the gym Monday. I'm going to get ready for the next tournament, and I'm going to kick this guy's ass the next tournament. You know, And it was always a motivating factor. But what, in focusing on him, what I didn't realize was I was actually bettering my entire boxing style, and it was actually getting me ready for all of boxing, where one day I would you know, take on the world and win world championships. Jimenez, you might be wondering what ended up happening in his, happening in his pro career. You know, Dolan didn't have the best work ethic, and I think he grew out of love with boxing a lot faster than certain people. You know, he had a, a father who really was well off, uh, did very well, um, had some businesses, and I think Dolan kind of just, you know, was a little bit, uh, had a little bit of a spoiled mindset. The father always was hard on him, but sometimes you can't force your kid too much. Otherwise, you know, they don't want to uh, do it. I don't know, you know? Uh, I, I thought, I thought, uh, you know, it's funny. It was funny because for me, I didn't have anybody pushing me, pushing me. I had people helping me out. My grandfather was a big motivator. I had a couple of sponsors in my neighborhood that were big motivators as well. But they didn't like, they weren't hard on me. Like it wasn't like, you know, they wanted me to stay out of the street. They wanted me to do the right thing. But if I didn't, if I stopped boxing the next day, like they wouldn't have been like, oh, what are you doing? You know, like they, they just be like, all right, you know, just don't just, do, you know, do the right thing and don't get yourself into trouble then, you know? It's just for me, I just fell in love with it. But I felt like Darling never had the, the, the enthusiasm and passion for boxing that I had. And eventually that does catch up to you. He ended up as a professional, he got an HBO fight. I think he fought Eurokis Gamboa for a world title, or maybe even before Gamboa fought the title, but they were on HBO. He actually dropped Eurokis Gamboa in round one, uh, but then Gamboa kind of beat him every round and, um, you know, uh, beat him on points. And that's, uh, that's, the, that's as far as Darling got. He got the, to HBO boxing at the dark level, but didn't win. Um, obviously, you know, the, the experiences I went through with him, though, uh, allowed me to keep progressing and, and become the, the world champion that I became in my career and uh, have the progression that I had in my career. But I good experiences, bad experiences, I'm thankful for all of them because they, they gave me the character and they gave me the, the, uh, the fine mental training and physical training to achieve what I achieved in my career. And now I have... You know, these platforms that I'm doing, like Poly TV and commentating with uh, Fight Stars and, and Pro Box and uh, even BYB Bare Knuckle. And in the past, I've done stuff with Showtime. You know, without a professional boxing career that had been so successful, I would not have been noticed in order to have these commentating jobs. So, um, you know, I'm glad in myself for all the experiences I had in boxing because even the bad ones, even the tough ones, they, they allowed me to get stronger, build a stronger mindset, find out who I really was, reveal my character, and allow me to uh, um, have that inner pride to, you know, excel at what I needed to excel at. And because of that, I've been able to, you know, uh, transcend and, and, and experience other things within boxing, even after my boxing career. So I owe everything to boxing, man, you know, and, uh, and yeah, that's why I freely talk about all my experiences, both the good ones and the bad ones, and I'm un unashamed to do it. And uh, I, I don't need to lie about them, you know. Uh, if, if I went through something bad, I'll tell you. If I went through something good, I'll tell you. You don't need that. one thing you know to know about me, man. If <laughs> I don't have to lie about it, because I'll tell you, I'll tell you. I, I, as you just saw, I've I've just expressed some of the worst punches I took, how they made me feel, freely like an open book. So if it didn't happen, guys. That I'm going to tell you it didn't happen. Conor McGregor did not happen. That release way. the footage, Dan. At all. At all. <laughs> no, I'm not even going to ask them to release the footage. They burned it already. But so, so, but, but that's, um, that's my bottom line with that. Um, 
And uh, thank you for, for uh, watching Poly TV. Like, comment, subscribe. Uh, we hope I hope you enjoyed uh, this uh, bit of a storytelling session. And I'll see you next time. This is Paulie Malinaji for Poly TV.